Our message this morning is Psalm 119, verses 17 to 24. 119, 17 to 24. Here we will learn about living for God's Word. Living for God's Word and not the world, the flesh, or the devil. Psalm 119, verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you to help us to understand your word, and may we have the grace to obey what is here. We pray, Father, that you would illumine us and show us our need for you, our greater need for you, in every way. May it be, Lord, that this prayer that we have just read from David would also be our prayer. That we would pray like this, that we would desire you every moment of the day and live accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this section of the, the Psalms, David continues his prayers. Each of these verses in the whole section and the whole psalm are, these are prayers to God. This is what he desires as a man of God. This is what he desires as a believer in Christ. He's not praying like this as an unbeliever. He's not talking like this as someone who doesn't know God. He now knows God and he understands now because his eyes have been opened. His ears have been opened. His heart has changed. His mind is different. He now has a longing, a craving, a, an, a passion for God that is immeasurable. It's a passion for God that God has planted in him, and he knows now that he needs it more and more and more. This is what we're reading about. We're reading about a convert, a believer, not somebody who's an unbeliever who has no concern for the things of God. An unbeliever does not pray like this, is not characterized like this. An unbeliever lives for himself. An unbeliever lives for his passions. He lives for his pleasures. He does not have a thought of God. A rare thought does he have about God. But mostly, it's all about himself. He's the master and lord of his own life, and he does whatever he pleases. But, somebody who has been changed by God, miraculously changed by God, whose will has been brought into submission to desire the things of God, prays like this, thinks like this, desires to please God in this way. This is what we're going to read about, living for God's word in this way. In verse 17, he acknowledges by his statement, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. When he addresses this to the Lord, he's addressing it as God's servant. So he now belongs to God in terms of not serving himself, not ruling his own life, but he understands that he is God's servant. He will do everything that God wants him to do. Christ is our Lord and Master. 
The people who deny Christ as Lord and Master, these are the people who are superficial. These are the people who don't really know God and love God, according to Jude. Jude verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who are long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Our only Master and Lord is Jesus Christ, and we are His servants. We are His slaves. We are His slaves of righteousness. We don't live for our sins anymore. We live for righteousness because we belong to the Lord Christ, who is our Master. He also recognizes that He is a different person. This is why He says, Deal bountifully with your servant. I knew nothing before I was your servant. I didn't care for you before I was your servant. I lived for myself before I was your servant. I lived for others in the wrong sense before I was your servant. But now I need you to continue to help me to live as your servant. So deal bountifully. He's acknowledging that all grace, all mercy, all love, all that he needs to live a right life has to come from God. It cannot come from himself. It cannot originate from within himself. It has to be a foreign or an alien righteousness. It has to be a distant truth. It has to be a distant wisdom. It has to be a distant power that comes from heaven down here and comes in, controls us, and takes everything about us and transforms it. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him because we know we are dealing with God who has to deal out His bounty. His bountiful grace, His bountiful mercy, His power, His strength, His wisdom, everything that comes from Him comes bountifully. The kind of bounty that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden before they sinned. They had all of the material things that they would ever imagine right there in the Garden of Eden. But they also had Spiritually speaking, original righteousness. There was no sin. There was no evil. There was no death. There was no one to harm them. There was nothing malicious out there. Nothing like that. They had that. Briefly, momentarily. They had it. They had it spiritually and they had it physically. This is the kind of bounty that God is offering us now. He's offering us that now in Christ... First it's our regeneration, then it's our sanctification, and eventually it will be our glorification when we are 100% in His presence and no more dealing with the troubles and the trials of life. This is the kind of bounty that we must depend on. This is what David is doing as a man of God. As a believer, he's doing this. This is the kind of prayer we ought to have. Lord, I'm nothing without you. I need you today, and I need you every moment of the day. Pray without ceasing. What do we do or what should we do when we pray without ceasing? Depend upon the grace of God. And he says here that I may live. He has a purpose. His purpose statement. He knows what he's about now. That I may live and keep your word. As long as I live in this life, as Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. While he's living in this life, he's living for Christ. And he wants God's bounty to come on him in order that he can live 
for Christ, no longer for himself, but for Christ, who is his Lord, who died and rose again on his behalf, that he no longer lives for himself, but for Christ, who accomplished redemption for him. He lives for him, and he keeps his word. Keeping or obeying his word. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep or obey my commandments. And I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The new believer, the Christian, now desires to live for Christ. Not for himself, but Christ who now lives in him, he lives for him. That's all he wants. That's all he desires. Verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. He is reiterating the fact that he cannot and he will not understand anything for his benefit, for his salvation, for his own goodness, for his own sanctification. He cannot understand or comprehend anything that will benefit him unless God opens his eyes. This is what we need. We need God, as he says here, open my eyes. Because in my natural state, and now as believers, we fight the flesh, do we not? We have the new man inside of us, and we have the old man, or the, the new self and the old self, the new creation and the old and the natural creation. We were born with the natural. And as new believers in Christ, we have to fight between the, the new creation and the old creation, and this new creation needs to have more and more knowledge, more and more growth, more and more eyes opened, because as we live in this world, it is often dark, it's often dim. Sometimes the path is unclear and cloudy. We need to know how to follow God. But what does it take? It takes God to open our eyes that we might behold, that we might see, we might see clearly. What? Wonderful things from your law. When someone's eyes are opened, then he sees things that he never saw before, and everything is wondrous, as he calls it here. Wonderful, marvelous, spectacular. We see this in, in little children. When little children are seeing things physically and materially for the first time in their life, many of the things that these little children see excite them because they are marvelous and wonderful to them whether it's animals or uh, uh, various other objects, automobiles, this or that, they are seeing things that are amazing to them. And they express it. This is the way it is with the child of God when he sees things that are spiritual that he never saw before. He says that they are wonderful, marvelous, amazing. And where are they found? They are found in the law of God. They're found in the law of God. He is reading, studying, mem memorizing, meditating upon the law of God. That is the word of God. And as he does so, his eyes are opened up more and more and more. He understands. He realizes. He's, he's overjoyed by this amazing power of God and insight and wisdom of God 
to explain, to, to guide, to counsel, to direct his life and his understanding on everything. This is what the Bible is. The Bible is not a distant and uh, uh, incomprehensible book. It is not. It is for the unbeliever. The unbeliever knows it talks about God and there's this certain person in here called Jesus Christ. They can understand certain things like that, but they cannot go beyond that to understand for their own benefit and for their own salvation. They can't unless God changes them. And this new believer, he desires this so that he can be transformed and understand how to live his life before God. The wonder of the Bible is a wonder that changes his perspective so that he lives according to this law. Whatever is found here, he doesn't consider a burden. Whatever is found here, he does not consider toilsome. He doesn't consider it something that is uh, worthy of carping and backbiting against God. He doesn't look at it that way. He looks at it the way Jesus does. He says, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. My yoke is easy, and my load is light. We have to consider that living for the flesh, living for our own desires, is burdensome. It's burdensome. This, this is what Jesus is talking about. There is a yoke upon people that they have, and it is a burden that they cannot bear. It is heavy, it's miserable, it leads to misery and turmoil for themselves and for everyone around them. This is the way it is. But... When Christ comes, he says that his yoke is easy and his load is light. It's easy and light because you delight in the wonderful things of God. There's a change. There's a difference. This is the way it is in the Christian life. When God says that he wants something done a certain way or or that way, we say, oh, that's what God says. That's what I'm going to do. No questions asked. I'm going to do it. I'm going to please God. I love to please and follow the things of God. That's why it's wonderful to him. Verse 19. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. He considers himself a stranger in the earth, and he does not want God to hide God's commandments from him. When strangers are in uncertain places, unknown territories, they need somebody to tell them, to direct them, which way to go and what to do. Correct? This is why he doesn't want God to leave him alone while he's a stranger. He wants God to command or to direct him in the path he should follow while he is a stranger. That's what comes from the Bible. Have we considered the fact that we are aliens and strangers, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. We are aliens and strangers on the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Yes, we have earthly citizenship, 
but spiritually speaking, the earthly citizenship is of no value compared to heavenly citizenship. Heavenly citizenship, we live for the heavenly king. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. We live for him. He is our king, so we must live for his kingdom, which is unseen, eternal, heavenly, celestial. We have to live for him, not for ourselves in this world. And how should we consider ourselves in this world? We consider ourselves strangers, sojourners, aliens. We are foreigners on the earth because our heavenly home is our true and real home. People who understand this correctly will not live for the passions and the pleasures and all of the things that are pernicious in this world. They won't live for that. They will live for heaven because they are strangers in the earth. And while they are strangers, they will be mistreated. While they are strangers, they need direction. They need to know what God desires. And that's found here. Many of us, however, don't live like this. We don't live as strangers in the earth. We live as kings in the earth. We live as kings in the earth instead of living as strangers in the earth. We want whatever we want and we want it now as kings on the earth. We don't live for the heavenly kingdom. Seek, but Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. This is the way we ought to be. Living for the king of heaven and for his heavenly kingdom. Verse 20. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. His soul is crushed. His soul is crushed because he has a great longing. He has a great longing, a great desire in his soul. So this is genuine. He's not pretending. He's not just going through religious rituals. He's not just going through the motions of religion. Coming, singing, praying, showing up, things of that nature. He's not doing those things or even other spiritual activities. Helping one another and whatever people do in church activities. It's not about that. It's about his soul. His soul has a genuine longing. It's crushed with a longing after God's ordinances at all times. This is characteristic of a believer. A believer has a tremendous longing always. Though it's not perfect, he says at all times, he's talking about the person who has been changed by God, whose soul has been impacted, whose soul has been sensitized to the things of God, now that it has been sensitized, or as Peter says, that we have partaken of the milk of the word, as newborn infants partake of the milk, we as newborn spiritual infants partake of that milk, but we have a longing, we have a craving, we have a good and right spiritual desire for the ordinance of God, the word of God, what he has written. And we desire it at all times. We know as babies know, it's not good to, be, to go hungry. So how do they tell us that they need more and want more all the time? They will cry, which is right and good. They will cry. They will do that in order for us to know it's, right, it's the right time, that they need more. 
And if they don't stop crying, we do whatever it takes to help them overcome that. If it has to do with their milk, we'll do whatever it takes to help them. This is the kind of way it should be with the spiritual Christian life. We have to long for God at all times and long for Him through His ordinances. Through His ordinances. From verses 18 and 20, we might also understand that whenever we need our eyes opened, whenever we have a longing for the things of God, it happens according to the Word of God. In other words, we cannot have these private prayers or private ecstatic experiences and say, the Holy Spirit told me. God said to me. God told me that I should do this or that. Or God told me that you should do this or that. And it came from the Holy Spirit. I had a vision. I had a dream. Or this or that. People do those kinds of things in order to manipulate the circumstances for their benefit. They do that and they should not do that. If we say, if we claim that our eyes have been opened, it has to be according to the wonderful things from the law of God. Or according to or after the ordinances of God. It has to be in accordance with Scripture. How can it be that the Holy Spirit directs us in some behavior that contradicts the Word of God? It cannot. It cannot happen that way. The Spirit will not do so. In fact, if we claim to pray and pursue a path contrary to the Word of God, it's an abomination. He who turns his ear away from the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs 28.9. Proverbs 28.9. We cannot say we prayed about it and I'm good with God. God's good with me. I'm good with God. Everything's just fine. Even though the course of action that you are pursuing is contrary to the word of God. How can it be that in the scripture where it says in many, many places that believer should not marry an unbeliever. That the believer says, oh, I prayed about it and God said it's okay for me to do this. The Bible says no. We, if the Bible says no, then it's wrong. Or what about if it's lying or stealing or committing adultery? I prayed about it. God said it's okay, I'm good. Just this one time is fine. About lying or, che or uh, cheating on, on your spouse or uh, uh, stealing something. Just this one time and that's enough. That's fine. I'll be okay. I'll just repent right after I do it and I'll be okay with God. The Bible doesn't permit that. And you cannot say you prayed about it, consulted God about it, and then live contrary to what the Bible says. It will not happen. The Holy Spirit will not direct you to do anything Contrary to the word of God. So let's submit ourselves and our prayers to conformity to the scriptures. To the word of God. 21. Now he will speak in the next few verses. 21, 22, and 23 of unbelievers. And their characteristics and their outcome. Their destiny. Unbelievers. The wicked. Verse 21. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. God rebukes or destroys the arrogant, 
who are also called the cursed. They are under a curse. The people that God despises, He rebukes and will destroy them, are arrogant. They're proud and haughty people, and they are under a curse. They're under a punishment. God will destroy them on the day of judgment. He will destroy them forever. And how are they characterized also? Because they wander from God's commandments. They wander. They go astray. Verse 10 says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. And also, 119.118 says, You have rejected all who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless or falsehood. You have rejected all who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is falsehood. The people who do not conform to the commandments of God, they are wandering. They are wanderers, and they are pretenders. They might say here or there, well, no, no, I keep the commandments of God. I'm fine. God's okay with me. I prayed a prayer, or I did this or that, and I'm okay with God, even though they have no desire for the things of God. In Titus 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They profess, they claim to know God, but really they are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed because they wander from His commandments. They are arrogant people, and they are under the curse of God. And that curse may come physically instantly. It might come sooner than later. Not everybody lives to be 80 or 90 years old. Sometimes it's at 20. Sometimes it's at 30. You never know when death will strike. That's why this curse of the arrogant might come sooner than you think. It will come on the day of judgment, but your opportunity to repent of sin is now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time when you need to consider the spiritual truths of God. You cannot put it off and say, no, I'm going to wait. I'll wait until I'm married. Or I'm, wa- I'm going to wait until we have children. Or I'm going to wait until I'm 40 or 50 years old. I'm going to wait until I'm 60 or 70 and close to death. And then I'll try to figure out this religious thing, this spiritual thing, this Christianity. Then I'll figure it out. No, you can't do that. Now is the time because there is a sentence or a curse upon you now. Galatians 3 says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things. We're already under a curse outside of Christ because we don't abide, we don't obey, keep everything that's in the law of God. The curse is already on us. John 3:36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Amen. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It is this wrath, the sentence that is upon every unbeliever right now. This wrath of God is on them, and it must be relieved and delivered only by Christ, by believing truly in Christ. Verse 22. What do unbelievers do? Verse 22. 
He says, take away my reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Take away reproach and contempt from me. He pleads with God to have deliverance from the enemies of God who take out their animosity on the people of God. The enemies of God, they cannot uh, punch their uh, fist at God because He's invisible and He's in heaven. He's out of reach for them. He's a, God is spirit. They can't do that. But they can punch us in the face. They can't steal any money from God, but they can steal money from us. They can't do any physical harm to God, but they can do physical harm to us. They can't verbally demoralize God, but they can verbally, with their slander and malice, they can demoralize us. They can dispirit us. This is what he's talking about. Take away reproach and contempt from me. There are many people, as I seek to live a righteous life, there are many people around me who despise me, who hate me, who take it out. They plot against me. They scheme. They backbite. They backstab. They slander. They say things about me that are untrue. And he's saying, take all of this away from me. This shows us, one, it shows us that if we live righteously, there will be people who attack us, who persecute us. 2 Timothy 3.12 And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will be persecuted if they live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Sooner or later, one kind of persecution or another, one level of persecution or another, something will happen. It will happen sooner or later if we are living righteously. And this is what we must do when that happens. We must plead with God. We must ask God, take this away from me. Take away reproach and contempt from me. We ourselves should not slander if they slandered us. Slander, if they say something that's evil and untrue about us, we should not do the same against them. Do not return evil for evil. We should not do things like that and instead plead with God and ask God as the widow did in Luke 18. In Luke 18, 1 to 8, Jesus explained a parable where there was a widow who would not get justice. But she kept pleading with the judge and she finally received justice. And in the same way, Jesus teaches us to keep pleading with God for justice and eventually we will receive justice. Sometimes we'll receive it now in this world, but ultimately God will settle all accounts. He will reconcile all accounts on the day of judgment. Any debts, anything that has to be paid will be paid on the day of judgment and that's when He will finally and permanently take away all reproach and contempt from us. And He'll transform us. We will have the upper hand. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. Jesus will afflict those who afflict us when He is revealed from heaven in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So that's what we should do when people persecute us. But we should also do something else. 
Verse 22 says, For I observe your testimonies. He wants to continue to observe God's testimonies. Observe does not simply mean to look on and to just view. He wants to observe in the sense of obey. He wants to look at what he needs to and wants to obey. He wants to do so. And he will do so because he belongs to God and God will deliver him in due time from all of these things. He wants to have the freedom, the opportunity to worship God, to live for God in peace. This is why also we pray. We pray for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. For this is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. We pray for peace. We pray for our enemies not to torment us so that we can live the godly life God wants us to live. Verse 23. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. This is the another verse speaking of unbelievers. In this case, rulers, kings, princes, the authorities, the governmental authorities who are sitting on their judgment seat. They're sitting there, they're deciding, enacting decrees and laws that are contrary to God and the people of God, so they talk against Him. There are princes, David had to experience that. He experienced rulers sitting and talking against him. He had Saul. He had to deal with Saul for several years, plotting against him, working to murder him, to assassinate him. He worked and worked and worked, and God delivered David time and again from those kinds of things. But what did David do? Did David retaliate in kind? No. He left room for the judgment of God. Because he knows what the scripture says. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. God will repay. And God did repay in due time. Because by the end of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 31, Saul died in battle. And David did not have to do anything. In fact, God made it through the circumstances, miraculously, that David was not in that battle. And he could not be a target for someone to say, oh, in that battle, David, you were there, and it was your arrow that killed Saul. That did not happen, and it could not happen. God worked it out. He worked it out that David was not in that battle, and Saul died by the Philistines. This is what he depends on. He depends on these kinds of things. And meantime, again, what does he do? Your servant meditates on your statutes. In the meantime, while he's praying for justice, he meditates on the statutes of God, the laws of God, the word of God. He meditates and reflects on how he needs to live in this trial, how he needs to live in this circumstance where where his life is in jeopardy day by day. He considers how he's supposed to live. He leaves room for the justice of God and he prays for God to bring about justice and then he lives according to the word of God. He meditates on what he's supposed to do before God. And then lastly, we have verse 24. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. 
Not only is he fleeing to the Word of God in the midst of persecution and tribulation, but he's going to the Word of God because he knows that they are delightful. They are pleasant. They are, those, they are in there, therein contained those things that are for his spiritual life and benefit. He delights in the Word of God. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. He's called by the name of the Lord, so he lives for the Lord, and he delights in the word of God. He takes pleasure in those things. He wants to live according to the scriptures. And he seeks the word of God as his counselors. When we were unbelievers, we delighted in many things that were contrary to this. The Apostle Paul explains his own conversion. And this is similar to many of us. He says, Philippians 3, verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anything else... If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. He had a tremendous pedigree. He had a background that was unmatched. He had it all in life. He had it set. But verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He wants Christ and everything that was a delight to him before is rubbish. It's trash. It deserves to be on the trash heap and burned up. That's what he says. He delights in the Word of God now because the Word of God is the Word of Christ and the Word of Christ tells us more and more about Christ. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, and this is what he delights in. He delights in this word of Christ. Not whatever he had and whatever he pursued before. That's what his delight is. He knows now, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves abundance with its income. He knows that. He used to love money, and he used to love the fame of the world. He used to love those kinds of things. But now he doesn't love those things anymore because he knows it's unsatisfactory. He knows it's empty. He knows it will not help with his soul. He knows that now. So he doesn't delight in that anymore. He delights in the word of Christ. James 4. James 4 and verse 1. James hits this subject head on. He says in James 4, verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? 
You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with evil motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why are there troubles, quarrels, and conflicts? Why is it that sin pervades and overcomes? Why is it? He says, is not the source your pleasures, or we, as David said, your delights, the things that satisfy you? Is it not your pleasures that cause this to happen? And your pleasures are pursued by lust, lust meaning a strong evil desire, evil desire for whatever. This is what happens, and you commit murder. You are envious, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you don't have because you don't ask, and you don't... And then when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with evil motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Whenever you do get what you want, whenever you do get it, you misuse it. And then when you don't get it, you don't get it because God doesn't want you to have it because all you will do is indulge the flesh. You will do it for your own pleasures. The pleasures of the world. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. It's insatiable. When is enough enough? When is indulging in the pleasures enough? When is the delight enough? It's not enough. And sometimes people lose everything. They lose their marriages. They lose their family. They lose their souls. <coughs> Because they take pleasure in the things of the world instead of the things of God. They delight in those things, but not David. David was a king, and he had whatever he wanted. Yes, he did sin, and on a, a couple of occasions he sinned very grossly. Yes, he did do so. But ultimately, the characteristic of his life, the pattern of his life, was that he delighted in the things of God. He delighted in the Word of God. He delighted to please Christ with his life. That's what he wanted. Not the world, not the indulging of his own flesh and pleasures, but he delighted in God. He further says in verse 24 that the testimonies or the word of God are his counselors. Why is it that we pursue our lusts and pleasures and delights? inordinately, excessively. Why is it that we do that contrary to the Word of God? Because we have wrong counselors. We have worldly, fleshly, devilish counselors. There are people advising us, counseling us in ways that are contrary to God. And we listen to them. Don't we go to people that will tell us what we want to hear so that we can sin the way we want to sin? Don't we do that? We, we go to counselors, however they, they may be. They may be informal. They may just be your friend. They may be somebody in your family. They may be so, some co-worker. Or they may be a formal counselor. Perhaps a pastor. Perhaps uh, a certified counselor. We go to people like that often because we know they will tell us 
what we want to hear, they will tell us that. They won't press us. They won't push us. They won't confront us. They won't rebuke us. They won't insist, you must repent of this sin because it's destroying you, destroying your soul. It's already destroying your marriage. It's already destroying this or that about you. You lost everything already. Why don't you give it up? Who goes to a counselor like that? Scarcely one in a thousand people who seek counsel will go to somebody who will tell them the truth. They won't do that. They won't do that. But that's what we must do. We must do so. In 2 Kings chapter 1, King Ahaziah of Israel, he became sick or ill, injured. And when he did, he is the king of Israel. Jerusalem is not very far. The Levites and the priests are not very far away from him. He even has Elijah the prophet as his contemporary. Elijah the prophet. But what does he do for counsel? He goes and asks for the counsel of a false god, Baal Zaphon. He goes to a false idol and to the priests who worship that idol, that false god, to ask those false priests about his own health and survival. Am I going to survive all this or not? How long am I I going to live? Am I going to be healthy? Am I I going to be prosperous? Is everything going to be okay in my kingdom? He wants to find out things like this from an idol. And what do idolatrous priests do? What do they do? They tell the worshiper whatever they want to hear. As long as enough money comes in, they'll tell the worshiper whatever he wants to hear. That's what happens. That's the way the system works. That's the way it works in religious circles. People do this because they want false counsel. They want to be consoled falsely. They want false hope. They put their uh, confidence in false things because they know temporarily it's going to soothe their guilty conscience. So what did Elijah have to say? Elijah said, Is there not a God in Israel? that you have gone to Baal Zephon? Why couldn't you just come and ask me, ask, ask Elijah the prophet? Or any one of the, um, any number of other godly people. God to- told Elijah there are 7,000 in Israel. Why could you not go to one of the 7,000 godly people in Israel and get counsel? Why could you not do that? This is what people do. They go to false sources for their pleasures. We must not do so. It doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter how many degrees he has. It doesn't matter whether he has a a doctorate, whether he's an MD or a PhD, whether he has a seat of power in some university or in the government. It doesn't matter how much money he has made. It doesn't matter how handsome and tall he is. It doesn't matter how smooth he speaks, how much he smiles, how, how he... Uh, flatters you about what you are and who, what you have accomplished. It doesn't matter. Don't go to those false sources. And when anybody tells you, whether it's through a book, whether it's the internet, whatever it is, when anybody tells you, we must filter it by the Word of God. It must be filtered by the Scriptures. That's when we are seeking true counsel, godly counsel. That's why he says that The testimonies of God are His counselors. I would rather have God as my personal counselor than anybody else. 
Because God has my good in mind. He has my good in mind. He has ordained for me to conform to Christ. What could be better than that? Than to conform to Christ. So the counsel of Christ, by the Spirit of Christ, in the Word of Christ, is what will conform us to Christ. That's better than anything else. Isaiah the prophet says, And when they say to you, your false counselors, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists, Consult all those people who like to look at the horoscopes, who like to read your palms, who like to tell you smooth and flattering things that everything's going to be just fine with you, peace and safety, everything will be very happy. When they say go to those kinds of people, the answer of Isaiah through God, uh, uh, or God through Isaiah, should not a people consult their God? Should not a people consult their God? You claim to know God. You profess to know Christ. You say you're a Christian. Your name is John or Elizabeth. Names in the Bible. Your father was a pastor. You claim to be Christian. Should not you consult your God then? Why do you consult people who say things that undermine the word of Christ? Why consult them, he says. And in this case, it's more absurd. He says, should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Why should you go to and pray to dead people as though they can give you advice on how to live your life? Why should you go to them? Why don't you go to the living God instead of praying and consulting dead people? So he says, to the law and to the testimony. You're your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors, David said. And Isaiah says, To the law and to the testimony, I insist. Is it found here? To the law and to the testimony, is it found here? If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. If they don't speak according to this word, they have no dawn, no light. They have no light that's going to guide your path whatsoever. They're only going to guide you into darkness and misery forever. They'll pretend that they have a great light, but they don't have a great light. It's only darkness. They have no dawn that will help you. So, let's live for the Word of God. Let's live in conformity to the Scriptures. May David's heart be our heart. This is the way it is with genuine believers. No more living for the world, the flesh, and the devil. They want to live for the Lord himself. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that wherever we are lacking in these matters, that you will reveal them to us. And also, Father, grant us the grace we need by the power of your Holy Spirit to live accordingly. Transform us and may... We see wonderful things in your law, and may we desire to live according to the word of Christ. May it be true of us that we delight in pleasing Christ in all things, no matter what the world says. Because we know, Lord, that when we desire to please Christ, there will be those foes that we encounter. They will ridicule us. They will laugh at us. They will despise us. But, Father, may those things not matter to us. May the only thing that matters is walking with Christ. But enable us, Lord. Enable us to overcome and not be discouraged 
but to live only for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for song 342, 342 Rock of Ages.